After the fall of Saigon, thousands of Vietnamese people fled the new communist rule. They landed in refugee camps in places like Malaysia and Thailand, and eventually many of them made it to the United States. There were approximately five waves of refugees that came between 1975 and through the 1990s. This is Fong Nguyen. I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Monterey Bay, and I recently published my first book called Becoming Refugee American, The Politics of Rescue in Little Saigon. In those decades, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese refugees came to America. The earlier arrivals were intentionally spread out all over the country. It was a very uh, old school definition of assimilation. The idea was that they needed to be in English-only communities so they could learn the language faster. Because they assumed that, you know, if you don't learn to speak English, not only will you not be able to find a good job, not be able to succeed in school, but you're going to almost justify the discrimination that you face. The government relied heavily on churches and religious organizations to help with resettlement. Religious organizations handled about 75 percent of the caseloads in 1975. Sponsors would act as ready-made communities for the refugees. When Thuy Dinh came to the U.S., her family was sponsored by the Blessed Sacrament Church in Alexandria, Virginia. And they set up ESL class for us so we wouldn't be like, feel so lost when school started. The Blessed Sacrament Church had the sponsorship thing down pat. Different people were assigned roles to help with every little aspect of resettlement. One would take us to concerts, and one would um, take us to the store. One would take us to doctor's appointments. So each of them would just do one thing. Overall, adjustment for Thuy Dinh's family went well. But still, they got some unexpected reactions from the church families who were helping them. They had this impression that all Vietnamese grew up or lived in the jungle, and that we didn't know a lot about modern life. Take driving, for example. Thuy's father immediately wanted to get his driver's license so he could start working. And the church member were very surprised and said, you drove? I thought like everyone like uh, rode bicycle. And he said, no, I, I had a car. And it would tell us, you know, like how you pour the water in the ice tray and how you freeze it. And my dad would say, yeah, we have ice trays. Other refugees didn't just face misunderstandings. Not all the sponsors had good intentions which meant some of the new Americans suffered. You know, they were treated like servants and made to do, like, chores on farms. And it was like indentured servitude. You know, there were letters coming from people saying, I'm looking for a wife. There were people who were looking for cheap labor, and they thought that they could find it, you know, with these refugees. This is Tan Tan. She's the daughter of refugees and grew up in Olympia, Washington. I have friends who grew up in very secluded areas and their parents just sort of, you know, they kind of left Vietnam behind them, but they were expected to just basically move on and become as American as possible. But all across the country, other refugees are finding that becoming American didn't have to mean leaving Vietnam behind. Eventually, we learned to congregate anyway and create communities. Despite the effort to spread the refugees out, the new Vietnamese Americans were finding each other. And instead of hurting their chances at success, it helped. People who were normal professionals in the marketplace, but who spoke Vietnamese, now lived among a critical mass of people who would go exclusively to them to buy insurance 
for example. This is Fong Nguyen again. People who wanted to have careers as singers or entertainers now had a critical mass of people who could attend their shows. People did migrate. They did learn to live around each other. And actually, they wound up succeeding economically because of ethnic community, not in spite of it. In the Clarendon neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia, a little Saigon grew. And there were all sorts of services owned and operated and catering to the Vietnamese population. A restaurant, a tailor, an accountant, a photo shop. Thuy Dinh, whose family had settled in Northern Virginia, shares what it was like. There was one store, it's called Saigon Market. And that's where we went and got our fish sauce and all the spices, the things that we needed to cook. One of the major adjustments to American life and connection to their homeland was food. Twee spent time in a refugee camp before moving to Virginia, and she remembers the U.S. servicemen trying very hard to make them feel at home. So they tried to make rice, but the only rice they knew how to make was Uncle Ben. Um, and they could never make it right. And one of the service um, men behind the counter said, is it good today? And we're like, no. And he was very disappointed. So it would go on for weeks. And one day, you know, he got it right. Still not quite, but we didn't want to, you know, disappoint him. So we said, yeah, it's great today. They made him really happy. They couldn't get rice quite like home until Vietnamese shops began to open. Lu Wen's family escaped Vietnam in 1975 and opened a grocery store in Virginia the next year. They banked on the idea of catering to the burgeoning Vietnamese community. And also, that would create jobs, you know, for both of my parents. They'd be working there. And the kids. I was 10 at the time, begging beans and vegetables and whatever, name it. As the Little Saigon neighborhood in Virginia built up, carrying these seemingly small provisions, rice, herbs, fish sauce, made a real difference. I mean, now you go to Whole Food, even the Safeway, you can find, like, a basil or certain herbs. Back in 1975, even those herbs, you cannot find at the local store, things that you would find fairly common today. In the morning when we get there at 8.30, there's already a line of people waiting from other states coming in, like North Carolina, people from Florida would drive up, and they would bring vans and station wagons, and they would buy for everybody in their town for like a month. You know, there's a coffee shop that is selling, you know, coffee with a condensed milk. This is Thua Do. He came to Virginia in 1980 from a refugee camp in Thailand. You know, my family, my, my wife and the two boys, still in Vietnam at that time. So I went to uh, Little Saigon. And then if you sit there and you listen to the Vietnamese music and drink the coffee, you feel like you know, you're back in Saigon again, if you close your eye. The story of Vietnamese resettlement in America is largely a success story. And it was successful because there was a complex web of assistance. Refugees got help from well-meaning sponsors. They found comfort and support in ethnic enclaves. And they were lifted by government programs. I got through the welfare program. I received food stamps. And when I was in college, because I was poor, my mom was poor, uh, I got financial aid. This is Phu Do Nguyen. He escaped Vietnam and came to the U.S. in 1980 as a teenager. Fu settled in Southern California, went to college, and later became an attorney, but not before serving in the U.S. Army. I just feel like it is a civic duty that you have to do it. Uh, the government helped me in every way they could. I mean, without those assistance and then without the help of this great country, you know, helping me and people embracing us, I wouldn't be where I am today. 
And I told my kids that this country has given me so much. My children a little bit harder to teach them, but I try to remind them that. Fu says it's tough raising his children to have the same appreciation for America that he has. There's a whole population of Vietnamese Americans who've grown up only knowing America as home. And they've had to balance being both Vietnamese and American. Tan Tan is one of those people. So I lived um, like a double life growing up, like so many other people of color, immigrants, refugees, whoever, right? I was really good at code switching. So it's like at school, I'd speak English, be super Americanized. I'd go home immediately, speak Vietnamese to my parents, um, eat Vietnamese food. Her parents sent her to a special school Friday nights to learn Vietnamese language and culture. Now she's grateful, but at the time she hated it. Like that was probably the most Vietnamese thing about me um, during those years. Because I really, my real desire was that I just wanted to blend in with my friends at school. As an adult now, Tan says she's on a never-ending quest to understand what it means to be Vietnamese-American. And she spends a lot of time asking her parents about their experiences and her heritage. There's a hunger among young people for Vietnamese-American history because there is this problematic silence that still predominates in the Vietnamese-American community. My family, they almost never talked about Vietnam. My father didn't want to ever think about that his mom would die one day and he wouldn't be able to see her and say one last goodbye. If refugees associated communism with oppression, then they associated freedom in the United States with um, depression. Um, because of the loneliness and you know, the lack of uh, culture and company, that came along with it. The circumstances for that generation of people who actually remember what it was like to leave the country are not conducive to being able to do anything but express gratitude. Theoretically, that's how we kind of think of charity, how we often think of rescue, that it kind of introduces a debt that unfortunately can never be paid back. My parents knew they were very lucky, and part of my parents giving back to America was making sure that their children did well in school and were successful when we graduated and that were self-sufficient. The way I put it is that perfection was the price of rescue. I don't even think anybody had to tell them, you better be perfect Americans. It was this pressure that I think people of that generation took on themselves. But it has come at a cost. Um, on the one hand, they're being told, you're Americans, you're free now, things are better. And from an American's perspective, it's like, that's absolutely true. What do they have to worry about now? From another perspective, just because their individual lives are safer and more secure, they have to still think about friends and, and relatives who need medicines or financial support. One lady who I interviewed talked very briefly about her father being thrown in a re-education camp and not ever being able to make it out. She had to pause a few times, even though we were 30 years removed from this. So th their worries haven't gone away, and they really don't have a space to re be able to talk about those stresses and worries. And silence was their answer. Turns out one way to break the silence was music. <laughs> Fudo Nguyen told me that Vietnamese music played a role in community building during the nine months he spent in a refugee camp. We sing songs all the time. Traditional Vietnamese music start people start singing in the camp. 
and then you listen to it, you start enjoying it. And Fong Nguyen discovered that many refugees created their own new music as well. They had composed songs, which are considered refugee songs, and these songs were very inspiring because not only were they ways for Vietnamese to finally break the silence, but to realize that, you know, their story was not just their story, it was everybody else's story. And there's a song called Mok Chuk Qua Cho Kui Hương, which is a gift from my homeland. And it's this song about leaving the homeland and having to, like, save your pennies so that you can send medicine and send cloth home to your impoverished families back in Vietnam. My mom is like, oh, like, people would sing that song in camp. You know, and everybody would cry. It united them. These songs did a great deal to narrate the social history of Vietnamese at that time. I grew up in a household hearing these songs about life before the war, hearing songs that were popular among the military. That is the soundtrack of my childhood, and... I didn't always like it. I used to think, like, you know, this is cheesy. Give me some Debbie Gibson or New Kids on the Block. But so many Vietnamese songs have just really withstood the test of time. And I am grateful because they tell stories that, in a lot of ways, my parents couldn't tell us themselves. I think music, it's the critical thread that connects us to our past. It's the thing that survived the war. What does your generation, or babies when they came here, think about the war and the U.S. involvement now from low these many decades later? My generation, especially those who were raised and taught in the United States, initially, and for the most part, adopt uh, a mainstream American perspective on it, which is that, you know, communism never posed a significant threat to American society. Unfortunately for me, as this, like, privileged kid who grew up in America and is like, war is over, and, like, so what if there are communists among us? But for, like, people like my parents and their generation, it is a real fear that is born out of real experiences. So I don't want to diminish that pain that they feel. Uh, Vietnamese Americans, people of my generation who have no memory of communism, have no memory of escape, their concerns are mostly with the present. Naturally and understandably, they come back, you know, butting heads with their parents. It is very nuanced, you know, it's not black and white, but generally you have an older generation who feel a connection to the Republican Party because it was known for, you know, funding the military and for being very anti-communist. And they fell in love with President Reagan's rhetoric throughout the 80s. And yet you have a younger generation and a lot of them support progressives and Democrats and socialists. And it's this weird full circle thing sometimes where I'm like, oh, my God, is this are our parents freaking out? You know, it's a weird debate, I think, going on like within our within our community. 
Kim Delavet is part of this next generation who grew up in the U.S., but her experiences as an American and connecting to her Vietnamese roots are very different. I was born in Saigon, Vietnam. My name was Phan Kim Phuong. Kim left Vietnam by plane with her 10-year-old brother on April 25, 1975. I was a toddler when we fled. But her mother missed the flight. She was stranded and, and stuck. She never had the chance to say goodbye to us. We found Kim's story in a collection of oral histories in the Texas Tech University Vietnam Archive. The audio's a little rough because she was interviewed by phone. She's talking to oral historian Jason Stewart back in 2010. Sometimes you can hear him breathing when she talks. Thank you, Jason, and thank you for letting me share my story today. Sure. Kim was adopted by a white family in Florida. She talks about going to the beach after church every Sunday and generally enjoying her all-American life. But she always felt different. When I was asked just a simple question, where were you born, I would just feel anxiety. I couldn't say, oh, I was born at Sacred Heart Hospital, and I was seven pounds. I was different, and I was born in Vietnam, and I didn't know where that place was. It really wasn't until I was a junior in college that I began to feel a hole in my identity. My boyfriend bought two tickets for the Miss Saigon play about a young Vietnamese mother named Kim. You who I cradled in my arms. And she sends her child to a new life in America. Asking as little as you can. And she never sees him again. As the play was unfolding, I could see that my life was eerily mirrored. I know I'd give my life for you. So I got very emotional. I didn't realize that a play could have that impact. And as soon as we left, I told Peter, my boyfriend, I need to go find my roots and I need to find out where I was born. I'm ready to go back. Kim and Peter arrived in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon, in 1994. They carried with them a note written in Vietnamese and a rudimentary map, which her cousin drew from memory. I was looking at this map that my cousin had drawn, and we were following it to the T. It was amazing how nothing had changed after 20 years. After a long trip, they arrived at a home in the Mekong Delta, and Kim knocked on the door. A man answered. She handed him the note, and he motioned for her to follow him down the street. You know, I don't speak Vietnamese, so I really was just following this stranger, and we came to another house. And the woman in the doorway, she read the note, and she looked at me and immediately said, Phuong. I hadn't heard that name since I was a toddler. And she immediately started to cry, and she woke up a little man on, on a bed. And she kept saying, Fung, and, and she showed him the letter, and he started crying. And I'm like, what's happening? What's happening? And in my mind, because I was just really in shock, my uncle pulled out a stack of pictures and um, paraphernalia that he had saved for 20 years. I saw a young picture of my mother I'd never seen before. I saw baby pictures that I had never seen before of myself. He pulled up 
young pictures of my brother, and he looked exactly the same. That's when it resonated with me. I realized that I was home. From just knocking on the door, my life has forever changed. And it was a homecoming that I thought I would never have, but was so blessed to have been given my family back. Kim learned her mother did manage to escape about five years after missing that plane. But she died of a heart attack the day before she was scheduled to leave the refugee camp. The government of Vietnam for a while was talking about refugees as though we had it easy. This is researcher and author Fong Nguyen again. They act like it was really simple to get on a boat and leave the country and just simply go to the United States and enjoy a middle-class life. Half of us died, and I think that explains to a certain extent why refugees express this constant gratitude about being in the United States, because they have uh, this sense of guilt and, and, and for good fortune that they were able to, to make it that far. Today, Americans are debating new refugee seekers, and that debate is playing out in Vietnamese-American communities. When news broke that families are being separated at the Mexican-American border, Tan was surprised that her father saw it as a rational way to manage the process. You know, I just said, Dad, I feel like I have to remind you, when you escaped Vietnam illegally, and you landed on the shores of Malaysia, and the Malaysians didn't want the refugees, you ended up in a refugee camp, and you were in the process of seeking asylum. How would you have felt if they had taken Wynne, my older sister? How would you have felt if they had taken her away from you? And I literally watched his face change, where all of a sudden, he could empathize, and he actually was like, oh, okay. And it became more real for him, what was going on at the border. I hope that the Vietnamese are not the last to have benefited from that American sense of generosity and opportunity. This is the fourth and final episode in our special series on the Vietnam War. This program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Support for With Good Reason also comes from the law firm of McGuire Woods and from the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Interviews with Thuy Din, To Do, and Lu Wen were provided by the Center for Local History at Arlington Public Library and are part of an ongoing project by Virginia Tech's urban and regional planning professor, Elizabeth Morton. Special thanks this week to David Berenger, director of Virginia Humanities Grants and Community Programs, to Kelly Crager from Texas Tech University's Vietnam Center and Archive, and to KAZU Radio from California State University, Monterey Bay. Some of our music this week came from Blue Dot Sessions. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.